Hi, I'm Esther Yunji Kang. And I'm Suzy An. Welcome to Shoes Off, a Sexy Asians podcast. Our sexy Asian guest today is a dream guest for any Asian person in journalism, or really any journalist. Or person. <laughs> or person. Uh, Lisa Ling has had an amazing career, but when we chatted with her, we were surprised that even she has her insecurities. No matter what success I've achieved, I think I always have that fear that it could all end tomorrow. It's easy to feel like because you've somehow felt like you were on the periphery, like an imposter. Like, I don't have a right. I shouldn't be feeling like I'm successful. That's just wild to me, considering, you know, how expansive Lisa's career is and how great she is in, in, in her work. That reminds me also of this conversation, not just in journalism, but in culture uh, in general, about, you know, whose stories get told, who gets to do the telling, who gets yeah. to tell these stories, and who ultimately decides that they're they're worth telling. I feel like I've been in many a newsroom where the question is, is this relatable to a wider mm-hmm. audience? Are they saying wider or whiter? <laughs> whiter. Yeah. You know what I'm saying. Yes, I do know what you're saying. And for me, I I, I personally tend to minimize the work I do to kind of protect myself from, you know, this idea that people just don't care Mm. about what I'm reporting. Mm. Yeah, I think this podcast is is an example Mm. of that. Mm -hmm. I feel like when people ask me how I'm feeling about the podcast, I say I feel mostly regret. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's. Out in the world, I want to stuff it back in the bottle. Yeah, I mean, that is imposter syndrome. And I totally feel that, too. Mm, That's real. And that's something that Lisa Ling talks about in our chat with her. She says imposter syndrome is actually really common among Asian Americans because for so long, we haven't seen people like ourselves in these fields. Yeah. And we talked to her about going to a karaoke bar with Yao Ming. And that one time she was in an Old Navy commercial. (laughs) That's coming up after the break. Stick around. So, Esther, I remember noticing Lisa Ling right away when I saw her first on The View back in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, Connie Chung was kind of the only icon in national news for a lot of Asian girls growing up in America. But when I saw Lisa, it showed me it wasn't a fluke. Asian women could be a strong force in journalism. Yeah. And, you know, the crazy thing is she's done so much. She's kind of like a child star, but in journalism and one who has actually had continued success and not too much drama. She's basically a unicorn. (laughs) And as a teenager, Lisa started a career in broadcast journalism. And by 21, she was reporting about the war in Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, I wrote about the new tiles in the cafeteria for my high school newspaper. Hey, don't don't shit on yourself, Susie. (laughs) New tiles are important. Okay. well, Lisa has gone on to host and produce original docuseries like Take Out with Lisa Ling on HBO, Our America on Oprah's Network, And this is Life with Lisa Ling on CNN. Lisa, welcome to Shoes Off, a sexy Asians podcast. Ooh, I'm loving all these wonderful things you're saying about me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's all true. And, you know, something we like to start with is this question. When did you first think you were sexy? (laughs) I I still don't think I'm sexy (laughs) at all. Uh, And... 
my husband's looking at me too and he's <laughs> he agrees i mean no, she is. <laughs> what do you think is behind that what do you think it is that you know you yourself have not either felt sexy or that you could claim sexiness you know to be totally honest with you i i think that because growing up the images of asian women in the media were so fetishized and exoticized that because I was aspiring to pursue journalism and tell stories on a mainstream level, I think that it became sort of inculcated in my mind that I should make a conscious effort to never appear like I'm trying to be sexy Mm -hmm. because I've never wanted the focus to be on me or what I'm wearing or how sexy I may or may not be. I really wanted people to be able to focus on my work. And so while no one has ever asked me that question, like when did I start thinking of myself as (laughs) as sexy? When I do think back on it, I do recall as a young person sort of making that conscious decision to be really cautious about how I appeared on television for my work and how I wanted people to think about me. Hmm. Well, in the late 90s, whether you like it or not, uh, when you were working at Channel One, Rolling Stone named you a hot reporter. What did you think of that? It was such a huge honor. I mean, I was this young, what, I was like 18 or 19, and to be recognized by such an esteemed and cool publication... (laughs) was really awesome. And for me, the term hot was less about my sexiness (laughs) and more just that they recognized talent in me. So it was really awesome. But someone at my work had cut out that article and drew slanted eyes over the eyes and wrote, yeah, right on it and put it in my mailbox. And so every ounce of excitement that I had by being named hot reporter for Rolling Stone was just squashed Mm. in an instant when I saw that. And it was just a reminder, right, that I didn't look like everyone else of my sort of lack of belonging at that time. And, and, you know, I think that that has kind of carried through, even though I have been able to work consistently in this industry, you know, I, I think it's something that that I've always carried along with me. I've always recognized that I have not been kind of perceived by some as being part of the mainstream and that it, it would always be easy to attack me for not looking like I was part of the mainstream. When that happened, did you bring it up to anyone at work? I didn't. I barely told anyone Yeah, I ran into my office and I was just, you know, my heart was palpitating and I can't remember if I cried or not. I think I I certainly was very emotional. Mm. But the reason I didn't bring up to too many people is because I knew that once I opened my door and walked out into that newsroom or into the halls, that any one of the people that I was encountering could have been that person. And so instead, I just kind of kept it to myself and really never mentioned it much at all until the last couple of years. Um, I think for so many of us in the wake of COVID and increased levels of violence in and around and against our community, it's been a real reckoning 
for us and a, a realization that so many of us have kind of suffered in silence, mm-hmm. right? And dealt with aggressions and microaggressions alone. And, you know, the silver lining for me really has been really feeling part of a community where everyone has felt these things at one time or another. And so I've really appreciated that and really found so much value in being able to share these things within our community. Coming back to, you know, wanting to put more emphasis on the content of your work, there must have been some pressure still as a TV person, as a young Asian woman coming up during that time when broadcast news was overwhelmingly white to keep up your appearance in some way. I mean, what was that like? Did people make unnecessary comments to you about that? Certainly. I mean, I do work in an industry where what you look like is important. And being Asian, I think I've I've been blessed in some ways. (laughs) You know, they say Asian don't raisin, right? Right. That's Um, true. But I, I also, you know, certainly when I watch my work, especially these days, I see myself aging a lot. And I try hard to take care of myself. But I also, again, you know, when you do watch my shows, I don't wear a lot of makeup. I wear the same looking clothes, either like olive color cargo pants (laughs) or gray or khaki cargo pants and gap t-shirts, because I, I really want people to be able to focus on my work. But yet at the same time, I know that it is incumbent upon me to at least try to kind of maintain myself. And look, I'm not going to lie. I am as self-conscious as anyone. You look great. You have always looked great and you look great now. And also your cargo pants and t-shirt, like it always looks like you're about to go kick somebody's ass. So that to me (laughs) is great. Um, Lisa, on screen, you're so confident, have such command of so many topics. You have like a really authoritative voice. What are you insecure about? or afraid of? What what keeps you up at night? I mean, I, I'm insecure about so many things. I, I, no matter what success I've achieved, I think I always have that fear that it could all end tomorrow mm. or that, you know, I mean, I think when you grow up without a lot of resources, you aren't able to see an abundance of people who are modeling what Success, and I don't just mean in a financial sense, means just balance and happiness and feel part of, you know, your country and your community. I've been hearing a lot in our community about imposter syndrome, because how can you not feel like an imposter when you don't look like anyone who is considered to be popular or successful or famous or heralded as any of those things that that achieve a laudatory response. It's easy to feel like because you've somehow felt like you were on the periphery, like an imposter, like I don't have a right. I shouldn't be. (laughs) I shouldn't be feeling like I'm successful. Right. And I've just been hearing this so much in the Asian American community. So I think it's really important for all of us to lift each other up and support each other and be there for each other. Those things are happening right now. And that's really exciting. It's been a long time coming. 
Yeah, I mean, to that point, a lot of us first saw you on The View in in 99 when you were 26. You know, there were very few Asian women on the national scale in journalism. For myself, I think I could only name Connie Chung at the time. Um, And and then we saw you. Uh, Were you feeling that pressure? Of course I felt that pressure, especially because I was on a show in which exerting your voice was essential, generating applause Because even though I had been working as a reporter for many years prior, in our culture, we are taught to be deferential to our elders and to not speak out of turn and that the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. So here I was in this environment where I had to do the opposite of all of those things. And I was inhabiting the seat of the youngest co-hosts. So all of those things, I think, left me feeling completely terrified. But had I not had that experience, I don't think that I would be as at ease in front of crowds and speaking out as I am now, although I still feel self-conscious a lot. And, you know, you mentioned Connie Chung. I was having a conversation with an Asian American woman who's a little older than me, but very successful in the media field. And she said, you know, Connie, Connie got a lot of shit Mm. at the time for not being a more vocal proponent of the community, Mm. which she was kind of coming up in the industry. And I said, at that time, Connie was just trying to kind of survive in this industry. In some ways, she wanted to distance herself from everything that made her seem more Asian because she had to in this all white, mostly male dominated industry, just stand on her own two feet, right? And just be the best damn journalist that she could be. And anything that reminded people of her difference was an impediment. And so how Connie survived in the industry still just astounds me. And so I knew when I saw her, that's what I want to be. That's what I can be. And the respect that I have for Connie Chung just knows no bounds. Yeah. And I mean, you've since become friends now. Um, What's the best advice Connie has given you? I mean, so many things, you know, I mean, she would tell me stories about how, you know, the fights that she had to have. Right. I mean, even as much as she and Barbara Walters became such good friends, it was hugely competitive. Mm, Yeah. Rune Arledge, the former head of ABC, would literally pit Connie and Barbara Walters and Diane Sawyer against each other to get interviews. And look, Connie got some good ones. And so from time to time, I would get, you know, notes and emails from her just to say, like, hang in there, like, keep pushing, keep fighting. And that continues today. You know, she is such a champion of mine, and it means so much to me. Well, I want to stick with this time period of of The View for a bit. Uh, While you were on the show, you were uh, featured in an Old Navy commercial. It's time to fall in love with me or my Old Navy Capris. So, you know, you're surrounded by uh, several men in that commercial, and some people were upset that, that none were Asian, though Tyson Beckford is part Chinese. There were talks about boycotting Old Navy stores and and sending complaints about you to ABC. What did you think about all of that at the time? I mean, seriously, it was it was bonkers. (laughs) 
you know, here I was, you know, the first Asian person to be featured in a major commercial that wasn't like, oh, I do, I, you know, Chinese laundry, whatever. <laughs> exactly. And the crazy thing about the whole thing was that on my first day when I went and met with the old Navy executives and the ad agency that was putting together the commercial, when I saw that there were going to be, there was going to be a diverse collection of men, I specifically said, oh, there's going to be an Asian man, right? And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The head of that campaign was a Korean American woman. The head of Old Navy was a Chinese American woman. And so I thought for sure that that would be fulfilled. I show up that day and there's no visible <laughs> Asian American man to be seen as part of the commercial. I think they thought, well, I'm an Asian American person. And so that kind of fulfills that part of the equation. And what could I, what could I say? I was, right. it was that day. Um, and so I did the commercial. And so there was, you know, a, a bit of an uproar among some Asian men, like you're a sellout, you know? And so like with the Rolling Stone article, like all of that excitement um, about this quote unquote achievement, was just squelched in an instant. So they won't let you have anything, Lisa. I know I can't I can't get a break. <laughs> After the break, Lisa Ling shares how she navigates burnout and mom guilt and how she and her husband are trying to break the cycle of generational trauma. Stay with us. You've interviewed a wide range of people across your career, and we want to ask you about a few of them. You were the first female host of National Geographic's Explorer series in the early 2000s, and you kicked off that gig with an interview with basketball phenom Yao Ming. You took him out to karaoke, <laughs> but that didn't make the cut. What was that like? <laughs> Well, look, I mean, it was such an incredible opportunity and I, I wanted my first piece to really highlight the importance of this Asian American athlete in our NBA. He was literally and figuratively larger than life and sort of symbolized what was happening in Asia and this kind of rapid transformation that was happening there. And so it was such a, an incredible honor. You know, those guys who were criticizing me never wrote that up. Like, look, her first episode, she writes, you know, does this episode about Yao Ming. But anyway, I'm not bitter or anything. <laughs> um, and what a lovely soul Yao Ming was. So shy, so out of place in this country. And talk about someone who really felt the hopes and dreams of all of us who are Asian on his shoulders. And his life had become going to basketball practice, traveling for games, and then going back to his hotel room or his home. Like he had not done anything fun since he had, had come to the U.S. because he just felt so much pressure. And he told me that he really liked karaoke. <laughs> and so I found a place in Houston and we went to karaoke. And I'll never forget him. He was sitting and still taller than all of us who were standing. <laughs> and we were singing Backstreet Boys. And he oh, nice. 
he was just such a a, a gentle, lovely soul. Mm, yeah. Well, a person who is quite a presence and still mysterious to many, Prince. Tell us about Prince. <laughs> so for as long as I've been alive, I've loved Prince. I mean, to this day, to me, he is the single greatest musician who has ever, you know, walked the earth. And when I was a co-host on The View, my assistant called me one day and said, uh, the artist formerly known as Prince called and wants to take you out. And she recounted the conversation that she had with Prince's assistant. He called and said to her, so he has been watching the show and he would like to know if <laughs> Lisa would like to you know, have dinner with him one night. Yes. This is who the hell is he? Who are you talking about? And finally, the man said, he is the artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> now, knowing how much I loved Prince, my assistant gave him uh, my <laughs> cell phone number. So I was at like some uh, armory art show in New York one night and I got a call and the voice on the other end of the phone said, Miss Ling, he would like to talk to you. And of course, at that moment, I knew exactly who he was. <laughs> and so he asked me if I would like to attend a TLC concert with him. And uh, of course, I was like, uh, yes, I, yes, I would love to. So I went on a date with yes. Prince or I went out with Prince and he was perfectly respectful. But we ended up just talking after the TLC concert till like five in the morning. Wow. <laughs> and then the same thing happened the next night. We got yes. together. He said, to pick me up he registered in the hotel as Karl Marx and <laughs> for two nights we just we just talked and you know I'm, I'm I'm glad he never tried anything on me because I I wasn't attracted to him in that way but I was and still continued to be so in awe of him and I will always just appreciate that experience that I I had with him yeah it's amazing how about Ari Nagel the self-proclaimed professional ejaculator. <laughs> yes. So we featured Ari in an episode of This Is Life during our ninth season. And he is has become somewhat of a professional sperm donor, even though he's not paid for it. He's part of a, a big Facebook group of men who willingly donate their sperm to women or couples who have a hard time conceiving or might otherwise not be able to have a child. And he is now up to well over 130 children that he has helped sire. Wow. But having spent time with some of those families and mothers who might have never been able to have a baby otherwise, like those families are incredible. And the love that they have for their children is as incredible. And like all of the shows that we've ever done, I like to think that we present people with a perspective that they might not have thought about otherwise. When you hear like a headline, like man helps to sire over 130 kids, you just think gross. But right. once you get to know the people involved, you might be compelled to think about it a little differently. Well, you just wrapped nine seasons of This Is Life, your documentary series on CNN, as you mentioned. I know you wanted to get to 10 seasons. And after the show was canceled, you said... I'm not done. I think there is an audience for depth. What's the status of that? Where, where would you like this kind of show to land? 
Well, look, I, I'm so proud of the nine seasons of This Is Life that we produced. And when I think back on all of our episodes, you know, 50 plus episodes, each one of them is a depth filled report about a community or an issue that we are experiencing or that exists here in America. And for five seasons prior, we did that at Oprah's Network Own with our show, Our America. And just given these turbulent times that we're living in, I think there's a real need for a show that really allows us to acquaint ourselves with one another, with our fellow Americans and those around the globe. And so I am not done. And I'm hoping that I will be able to continue doing and producing thoughtful programming that allows us to know each other better. I'm talking to a lot of folks and it looks really promising. And I want to try to continue to create programming or do work that makes people think and that allows us to really recognize our shared humanity more. Lisa, you've spent so much of your career and life on camera. We want to know who is Lisa Ling off screen? I am an even worse dressed, (laughs) less makeup wearing, (laughs) mother of two kids, just trying to do my best to be as present as I can. It's really a pretty boring life, which is why I think I derive so much excitement and I'm so passionate about the work that I do because off camera and outside of my show, it's just a very sort of life of domesticity (laughs) (laughs) and chauffeur dumb, even though I don't cook. I'm lucky that my husband and people in my family cook. So I want to rewind back to your childhood. You grew up in Carmichael, a suburb of uh, Sacramento, You've talked about feeling ashamed of your Chinese heritage and said that you were like afraid to bring friends home because of the smell of the food in your house and how that sticks to you. When did you start feeling proud? It's a great question. Um, I think when I moved out of Carmichael, because there were so few Asians, I was teased mercilessly. It wasn't malicious, but it was constant and I did have shame. I mean, it's, it's so interesting. My kids just celebrated Lunar New Year at their school with a parade and festivities all day long with a BTS dance party. <laughs> we had kimchi on campus. We had sriracha peas. We had a dumpling making station and all the blonde kids and all the Latino kids and the African-American kids. They were so excited to be dressing up in Chipao and in hanboks and you know Asian attire, and like God, my seven or eight year old self would have just loved to have been able to experience that. Like I would have never taken Asian food to school or wore you know any Asian style clothing. And so, when did I start to feel excited and, and proud of my Asian American identity? I would say soon after I left Carmichael and moved to Los Angeles, where this just city opened up to me and it's just filled with so much diversity, such massive Asian communities. I mean, we have the biggest Thai town here. We have a, a huge Vietnamese community. We have the biggest Chinese community outside of China. I felt home 
for the first time. And so I just wanted to not only acquaint myself more with Asian American history and Asian American culture, but I wanted to try to be a vehicle for a greater understanding and appreciation of our culture. Lisa, growing up, um, I I grew up in Alabama and I also um, experienced what you did, just relentless teasing of kids who just, they just didn't know. But uh, when I told my parents about that and and tried to uh, relay that to them, you know, they didn't know how to explain it to me. They didn't know what to do since they had never experienced that uh, as children growing up. And with this new generation, you know, how you were explaining about it at your daughter's school, like the celebration and and how the kids of all races are embracing that. That's great. But, you know, kids are still every once in a while experiencing that that racism. And I and I wonder how you are explaining that to your children and, and how you're talking to them about that. Over the past couple of years, we have experienced such a level of unpredictability and fear about this virus, fear about mass shootings and, and, and shootings in general. And what I just try to tell my kids is that people will always find a reason to blame, right? And every night, I'm not a religious person, but I, I pray with my kids every night. Mm. And I pray that a higher power will give us the strength to stand up for each other, for our fellow humans, no matter what we look like or what someone's background is or where they come from. And I also pray that we will be given the strength to stand up for and protect our planet, you know, the plants and the animals. You know, all I can tell them to do or teach them how to do is to counter not just the hate, but the hurt. Mm You talked about your responsibilities as a mother. You work long hours. You have tough assignments that take you all over the world. Um, and yet, as a parent, you know, you want to be there for your kids. And it sounds like you really, really are. I mean, the descriptions of what you do with them are just beautiful. How do you and your husband, Paul, who is a hulking, hunky, handsome <laughs> Korean, by the way, um, juggle your high-profile, demanding careers with, with parenting? We just do our best. It is really, I'm not going to lie, it's really, really hard. Paul and I both travel a lot, and we just try to be as present and communicative with our kids as we can be. I mean, it, you know, we, we show them our work, and we tell them why it's important to us, and and I do think they get it. Our parents, Paul and my parents, they didn't show up at any of our games or of our you know, things that were happening at school. We try hard to show up at every one of them, but when we can't, we explain to them why and how there are so many kids out there who who aren't afforded the privilege of having their parents attend the things that they do. Do you ever have mom guilt? Oh, every second of every <laughs> day. Oh, yes, constantly. And, 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 you know, I mean, people are always asking me about how I juggle things, but people don't ask my husband those things. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And so what I try and do is just, again, like I do my best. I mean, I, before I leave on a trip, I color code schedules. I make sure there's food in the fridge. I make sure all lunches are ordered. I sometimes even lay out clothes and Paul will still call me and go like, <laughs> what kind of and, <laughs> um, and so what I will say to the mothers out there is don't be afraid to tell your partner 
what he or she needs to do. And to all of those spouses who are out there, give your wife some help. Listen up. Listen to what yeah, Lisa's like, saying. Create some of the schedule yourself. And if, if not, at least familiarize with it so that you don't need to be calling and asking about it when it should be in front of your face and in your <laughs> consciousness. <laughs> right. Well, uh, your your husband, Paul, has said you both bonded over having to raise yourselves and that as parents, you want to break that cycle with your two daughters. How are you trying to do that now? Well, we're probably more involved with our kids' lives or in our kids' lives than they would like us to be. <laughs> You know, look, both of our parents, Paul and my parents, you know, they were immigrants to this country and they had to work so hard and and they couldn't be there for us in the way that we felt we needed or that we wanted them to be. And I think we grew up feeling a lot of resentment about that for a long time. And now as adults, when we look back on the sacrifices that our parents made for us and also that they come from cultures that have never really been that communicative mm. or affectionate. And frankly, they never received that as kids. You know, I think that we stopped being hard on them because we realized that they never really were able to experience those things that they needed as well. And so how could they show it when it was never modeled for them? And so Paul and I not only try to model affection and deeper levels of communication with our kids, but also with our parents. And so it's been a really beautiful journey for all of us to learn how to really, really love on each other in a really deep way. And Paul and I recognize that we can, even today, try and meet and fulfill needs that our parents have that they never experienced from their own parents. And even though we're the kids, we can show them what it's supposed to be like and, and, and how it feels. It's so important for us to do that for our parents, you know, take the time to try and know and, and understand their stories and what they've gone through and about their immigrant experience coming to this country. I, I would imagine so many of them have just been harboring it and holding it inside of them and, and never gotten a chance to really share that. And they need to know how healing it is to divulge it. It hurts. It's so painful to purge a lot of that. But it's so essential if they're ever going to be able to fully, fully heal from the trauma that not only they have experienced, but that their ancestors have experienced that has been carried down along with them. Lisa, you've had such an amazing career. And you keep saying that you're just getting started. Aren't you exhausted? Like, I think I would have quit about, I don't know, 15, 20 <laughs> years ago if I were you. What's your secret to not getting burned out? Sure, I'm definitely exhausted. But um, I also recognize the need. And it's not just about my generation anymore. You know, it's about, it's about the world that my kids are growing up in. And I want my kids and, and, and everyone's kids to be able to grow up in a world where there's hope, um, where we feel a mutual empathy and understanding for each other. And if I can somehow provide those tools and open some doors and windows into other cultures or expose people to those who might be different from 
us or you. That's what I need to be doing right now. As, as tired as I am, it's, just, it's, mm. it's what I need to be doing. Well, Lisa, before we wrap things up, uh, we're going to play a game we call Extra Credit. Um, and it's where we ask you random rapid fire questions. You ready for okay. this? I'll do my best. <laughs> all right. Asian overachiever, so I'm going to try. <laughs> all right. All right. You're, you're going to know all the answers. All right. First one, Duran Duran or Prince? Oh, God. <laughs> is it just one word? I mean, Prince is the genius artist, but like if John Taylor wanted to sleep with me tomorrow, I'd have to do it. <laughs> and my husband would approve. He's like, if he wants to do it, you have to do it. That's your pass. <laughs> <laughs> totally. First Asian celebrity crush. I mean, I do have a, a massive collection of Bruce Lee action figures. So I would say like when I saw Bruce Lee, not only, it wasn't just when I saw him shirtless, but <laughs> when I heard him speak, the genius, the thoughtfulness, the wisdom was just, it, it totally blew my mind. The best thing you ate on takeout with Lisa Ling. You guys, you are asking me the most impossible <laughs> Questions. Oh, God, this is so hard. The best thing I ate was also one of the greatest experiences that I had. And when I had the Filipino kamayan, mm. where we all sat at a table and, and consumed these beautiful foods on the banana leaf with our hands, that was just such a, an all-encompassing, beautiful and delicious experience. You and your sister, Laura, are very close. What's your favorite childhood memory together? Oh, we shared a bedroom together and there was a cartoon called Richie Rich. Um, and Richie had this babysitter named Iona the Robot. Yeah. <laughs> and so every night, Laura and I would pretend that we were part of this Richie Rich show. And those are my favorite memories <laughs> of just like growing up, you know, sharing a room with my sister and every night, you know, being told to go to bed and we would just stay up for <laughs> hours just pretending we were part of a show. So cute. Funniest career blooper. When I was on the show Scratch, I went down a water slide in a bikini. You know, I was only 17, so it's like I didn't even, I wasn't even developed or anything like that. So um, it wasn't to be sexy. It was because I was going down a water slide and the top of my bikini like flew up oh, and God. I stood up and thanked everyone for watching Scratch. Oh. <laughs> Fortunately, we were on tape and it wasn't live. So that tape never saw the light of day, but I know someone still has it, which is oh. kind of concerning. Oh, no. <laughs> Yikes. That's that's a good one. That's a good one. All right. <laughs> Last one. Shoes on or off in the house? Oh, off. Completely off. <laughs> well, that's award-winning journalist Lisa Ling. It was so much fun talking about your career, motherhood, everything else. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. You two are such delights. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. As we chronicle the many people who make up sexy Asian America, we want to hear from you. And to be clear, we're talking about a wide interpretation of sexy. Here's what some of you have shared with us so far. Hi, this is Julia from Susie's Neck of the Woods, Alabama. It's Jay from Philly. And my sexy Asian nomination is John Cho because he was hilarious in Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle and then he was intensely handsome as Sulu on the reboot of Star Trek. I think you guys should have on Jennifer Lee, a.k.a. Toki Monster. Not only is she one of the reasons I got into DJing and production, but yo, she had two brain surgeries 
and still came back to write another album. If strength isn't sexy, then I don't know. So who's a sexy Asian we should have on the show next and why? Record yourself. Email us a voice memo, although we welcome regular emails, at shoesoff at wbez.org. We want all the tips. Shoes Off is a production of WBEZ Chicago. This episode was produced by Esther Yoonji Kang, Stephanie Kim, and me, Suzy On. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizek. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. And leave us a five-star rating. It'll help us reach more people and bring you more conversations with sexy Asians. We'll see you next time. Stay sexy.